1: What's up, guys? Hey, welcome to Man Challenge. Glad you guys are here as you make your way to your seats. With many of the hey, I got to be honest. It's right always um, a great thing, and I love bragging on this broken. environment that we have in here um, this morning, what we have at Southeast. Once, once a month, we have at our church what's called Starting Point. And what Starting Point is is for all of the new people that are coming and being part of our church and whether it's Andy, Ronnie, or myself, we get to go into that place and talk to those uh, new members about places that they can get plugged in. And so we, um, we get their names, we get their numbers, and anybody that's interested in men's ministry, we, we get to call them and talk to them about things within our men's ministry where they can get plugged in. I say all that because some of you all may have a, a little bit of extra room at your, at your table. If that's ever a case, you're like, hey, Chris, Andy, Ronnie, I, I, can, I can take another guy, two guys. Man, there's always, this is a great entry point for our men to get involved in our church. One of our values um, here with men's ministry is develop a heart to invest in others. Philippians 2, verse 3, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. When we invest in others, We live out this principle that Paul is talking about in Philippians. We live it out. So the first Thursday of every month, the first Thursday of every month, we meet at 515 to 545 to pray. That's every man that's part of our church. We meet right downstairs in one of the rooms. I think it's 106, right off the atrium. I would love for you guys to be part of that. But one of the things that we always pray about is our children's ministry. Each week, each week, guys, that there are families that come in with their children. It may have happened to you. They come into our children's department to, to check in their children, to hear from the word of God and, and their teachers, and they don't have enough room. They don't have enough volunteers. So what they have to do is they have to look at that parent, those parents, and say, sorry, we just don't have room. So now they have to make a decision. Do we take our two-year-old into the service and sit and cross our fingers and pray that everything's okay or do we get back in the car and go home? And so what we want to do as a church is we want, um, we need some men. We need some men to step up and serve in this, in this capacity. Okay, right now we have 34 men. 34 men within our men's ministry, 34 men that are serving within our children's ministry. As a church, we, um, we set goals. One of the goals that we want to do is we want to have 144 men serving in our children's ministry. Now, why would you say 144? Because we have 1,440 men from our church plugged in our ministry, such as Man Challenge, DDG, Getting Equipped. 1,440. You guys are part of that number. So we said, as a a staff, we said, we want to have 10%. 10% is is a good go. So right now we have 34. We're going to need 144. Together, guys, we can do this. Why? Why are we doing it? Where families don't have to make the decision of getting in the car and possibly not hearing the gospel. That's what this is all about. So on your table, on your table, you have a card. Um, man, I would love for you to do that. And I'm not saying you do this every week. Let's get that straight. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you go home, you pray about it, um, you talk to your wife, and, and we, we, this church body, the young men and women that are in our children's ministry could use men. There's a high percentage of our, our children Um, that don't have fathers maybe, and maybe we could be that. All right, Sam, um, Reader is going to be our speaker this morning. Sam, come on out. Sam, um, you all know Sam. I'm not going to go through 150 questions with Sam. He's been here a lot longer than me. I love this guy because he has a heart um, to open up his Bible and and share God's Word. Sam, I just want one, I got one question for you, and I'm going to set it up with like a phrase. I've always heard the phrase that says, when your output exceeds your intake your upkeep becomes your downfall okay so that now that's a lot of directions okay when your output exceeds your intake your upkeep becomes your downfall how does a spiritual leader within our church especially within our men's department how do you keep your axe sharp what's some things that you do what's some books that you're reading what's some practices that you put in place
0: I mean this is a big part of it for sure uh, we say all the time, you're, you are your own worst accountability partner, and I think that's true. So I, I'm intentional to have guys around me who speak into me and sharpen me for sure. Uh, usually in the mornings, I'm up early, 5, 5.30, something like that, and I've got my nose in something. Uh, recently, I was journaling through Colossians. It's just a book I hadn't spent a lot of time in and just going verse by verse, chewing through it. And had a couple guys I was texting what I found. They were sending me what they found. So that whole accountability piece kind of keeps you on it. Uh, And I don't like to journal. (laughs) I really don't. But it forces me to focus. And i found that when I do that, I like the fruit. It's like eating a salad. Uh, I don't like eating salads, but I like the way it makes me feel. So I don't do it all the time, but I do it sometimes. To make Burke proud mostly, but... uh, Yeah, yeah, just keep my nose in something. I'm usually in the Word, uh, and I read other books. Like um, I just reread The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Has anybody read that? One man, two men, three, four, five, okay. Yeah, it's a good book. I'm not good at stopping. I just go, 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 go. Mm -hmm. So I just reread that to start the year, and that was convicting. And, uh, yeah, does that answer your question? I'd probably
1: say a lot of us probably deal with the same thing. I look forward to hearing God use you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Sam. God, I pray that you just be with him. Lord, I pray that, um, that he will, quote-unquote, hide behind his Bible, Lord, that you will speak through him, and Lord, that he doesn't have to be uh, motivational, he doesn't have to be inspirational, it just be clear. And so, Lord, I pray that your word is, is given today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Sam.
0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. I am excited about our text this week. This is going to be a fun text to walk through. Uh, maybe you've been here for the past month. Maybe this is your first week. Either way, I think it's always helpful to just kind of recap where we've been, why. So we've been in this, uh, this study we've called Wreck the Roof. That's been here. Uh, if your wife's plugged into women's ministry, she's been studying the same thing. If you come here on Sunday mornings, we've been studying the same thing. Uh, that This comes from a passage in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5. There's a story with these four guys who, who bring their paralytic friend, and they want to bring him to Jesus. But where Jesus is at, it's packed. They can't get in, so they get... Risky, they get innovative, they get creative, they go up on a roof, they rip a hole in it, they lower their friend down, Jesus heals him, forgives the sin. It's it's an incredible story. And out of that story, kind of our church leaders have developed a mantra, kind of the summary statement that we can use to champion that value, to kind of speak out our identity as followers of Jesus. And so that mantra is wreck the roof. We want to be a people here at this church, we want to be a people who live lives marked by a willingness to take risks, to connect people to Jesus, to love on them one at a time. And so to kind of help us remember that, we've taken the word REC and turned it into an acronym. And so W, week one, we looked at watching for opportunities. Chris led us in that. And then week two, we looked at removing obstacles. We were downstairs. Joe Donaldson, if you remember, led us through the first ever men's ministry, American Ninja Warrior, which was pretty wild, Joe, uh, I won't be doing that this morning. I'm still not quite sure who won that, by the way. They're both going to be quiet about it. Okay, fair enough. It's very godly of you men. Uh, then last week, Ronnie led us in a work uh, worship service where we talked about uh, embracing the mess. That was the E. This week, we're on the C of wreck. That is call for help. So in this idea of being people who wreck the roof, who do anything it takes to connect people to Jesus... There, there's oftentimes someone who needs to raise a call for help. There's also people who need to hear that call. There's people who need to respond to that call. So today we're going to continue in the book of Acts, if you will. Open up your Bibles, Acts chapter 6. That's where we're going to be at today. And our passage is relatively short. It's just seven verses. Uh, but as you turn to Acts, we haven't really said a whole lot about the book itself. So let me kind of just paint a picture there real quick. Um, like I mentioned, Wreck the Roof comes from Luke chapter 5. The guy who wrote the book of Luke, his name, unsurprisingly, is Luke. Luke was a physician, very details-oriented guy, and he also recorded what we call the book of Acts, or formerly the Acts of the Apostles. So after Jesus resurrects, he hangs out for a while, then he ascends, and when he does, he commissions the apostles, formerly called the disciples, to be the hands and feet to start as the leaders of the church of Jesus. And so this is really kind of a historical narrative of the creation of the church. We see that the church starts. And we're in chapter 6 today, so it's still early in the book. But basically we've seen that the the apostles are kind of really devoted to two main things, to prayer and preaching the gospel. That that early on, if you go back to chapter 2, they're up in this upper room, and they're praying, and the Holy Spirit falls, it fills them. And what's Peter do? He goes right outside and he starts preaching. Basically, mostly quoting the Old Testament and talking about how Jesus is what it all points to. And so there's some opposition from the the priests, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of their day. And kind of as the church grows, you also see simultaneously in the book of Acts this opposition growing that goes from slandering to arrest to beating and eventually murder of the church. And so Luke does this kind of creative thing as he writes where he'll both zoom in and zoom out. He'll like go from a narrow focus to a wide-angle lens in the text. He'll get these summary statements that kind of tell you big picture, here's what's going on, and then he'll zoom in and give you these stories, and then he'll zoom back out. So it's helpful to know that because he does that in our text today. But over and over, as opposition grows, it's like the apostles double down on prayer. They find themselves after an arrest praying and asking for boldness, and the Lord fills them with boldness, and they go out, and they just start doing miracles and preaching the gospel. And so over and over, that's kind of the theme that we see in this book, leading us up to really the end of chapter 5, At the end of 5, the apostles have been arrested. They've been questioned. They're trying to figure out, what do we do with these cats? And you could read at the end of chapter 5, starting in verse 41, it says, Then they, the apostles, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. They're like, man, we look like Jesus right now. We're being opposed. And then that last verse says, And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So no matter what, whatever opportunity they get in a public set- situation, in the privacy of home, they are devoted to preaching that Jesus is the Christ. That Every time they get an opportunity, they're telling people Jesus is God in the flesh, that he came and he has redeemed us, that we have a brokenness from sin, that he bore our sin and shame on the cross, he died a real death was buried three days later, resurrected, and if we put our faith in him, we have the promise of eternal life. He's redeemed us to the Father. That's the gospel in a nutshell. So they're going around preaching that, and that brings us to our text today, which is Acts chapter 6. So read with me here. Acts 6, starting in verse 1. says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenist Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Timon, Parmenaeus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So you can catch right at the very start, Luke kind of hits you with that wide angle lens. He just gives this big summary statement that in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so it's like things are booming, church is growing. And we kind of get this idyllic statement that things are going really good, and it's followed immediately by a complaint arises. So maybe, maybe you can relate to this, or maybe I'm the only one. But I, I've, at numerous times in my life, kind of seen the church in the book of Acts as kind of like this idyllic, perfect church. And I use that sometimes to be critical of what I see in front of me present day. And I think, man, we make this all complicated. We've got smokes and light show we're stretched too thin, we've got too many things we're juggling. If we would just keep it real simple. If we would go to like Acts 2, when it says that they were just focused on, uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread and prayer. If we would just do two or three things, if we would have a minimalist approach to our faith, we wouldn't have problems. (laughs) But But the book of Acts tells us things are good, and there was a problem. And oftentimes in this book, Luke will show you that. He'll give you this idyllic statement, and then you'll see, like, They had everything in common. Things were good. And then there's a story about these cats named Ananias and Sapphira right after it. So if maybe you have a low view of the church, whether it's here locally or or big, and maybe you're frustrated, maybe you've been hurt, maybe you don't like how something's been taught, I I just want to say, like, I, I am sorry if you have been hurt by the church. And maybe this is the closest you've ever gotten to getting back to a church setting. I just want to encourage you that like, your observation that the church is not perfect is absolutely right. The only perfect being in the church is the head of the church, Jesus. And me, I, I'm, on my best day, a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus. And so if your assessment has been that the church is not perfect, yes and amen. But if your response to that was to, to separate yourself and to say, I'm writing church off, I don't like formalized religion, I'm going to say, hang with me in this text because we're going to see that There's maybe a biblical way to respond to problems, to hurt in the church. And so we we get from Luke, he says, that the Hellenist Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. So there's there's these two different categories, and you can read up on this all you want. There's a lot we could say, but to keep it real real just simple this morning, the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews, and and the Hebraic Jews spoke Hebrew. They were kind of like the originals. They were the OGs. And, and, and the Hellenists were, a lot of them, converts who, who hadn't grown up as Hebrews following the way of Yahweh. And so there's this daily distribution of food going to widows. And there's a certain group, maybe an ethnic group, that's getting favored. And so think about it like this. Imagine that on a Thursday morning we provided coffee to you men. Wouldn't that be great? And Imagine it was something good like quills. But we only got like 100 guys worth of coffee. And so when you came in, there was tables set up with coffee, but it was, hey, we're going to go by seniority in here. And, and if you've been in here 10 years or longer, if you've been here since it was called men's fraternity, you get first dibs. So Jay Dorch goes up and fills up his cup, and Hunter just waits over here like, man, I, I don't even know what they're talking about, right? It wouldn't take very long, and we'd be like, man, I don't know. The Bible says a lot about God not showing favoritism, and we're not supposed to do that. That kind of doesn't seem fair, right? And so a complaint would arise. Well, we're, that, that's coffee. That's a silly example. What we're talking about is widows and a distribution of food. We're talking about survival. And certainly, if you know your Bible, God cares deeply about vulnerable women, especially widows. If we were going to run the clock back to early in the Bible, if we went to the book of Deuteronomy, there's countless examples. I'll give you one. It's Deuteronomy 24:19. You can make note of that that basically, remember, it it was an agrarian culture. They didn't have Kroger to get their food. They grew everything. They didn't have combine tractors to harvest. They did everything by hand. So they would go out to harvest their field, and God God made these rules, these policies for his people. That He said, when you're going to go harvest your field, the first time you go through, you're going to miss some stuff. You're not going to catch it all. Don't circle back and get it. You leave that. You leave that so that the sojourner, the foreigner, the refugee, the immigrant, the widow the orphan, that they can come through and they can get some food and they can survive. God wove it into the fabric of his people's style of living that there was provision made for vulnerable people groups. If you keep reading in the Bible, the story of the Bible, you get to the book of Ruth. Basically, the entire theme of that book is that God's redemptive power to redeem folks who can't redeem themselves displaces glory. If you keep reading and get up to the Gospels, in Mark 12, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, and basically points them out and says that they take advantage of widows and their estates. If we read past the book of Acts and get to the book of James, James, a very practical book, James writes, true and undefiled religion is this. If you want to know what real religion is, says James, it's this. You visit orphans and widows and their afflictions. Like if you're really a follower of Jesus, you don't know what it looks like. You take care of orphans and widows. That's what James says. So certainly when this dispute arises, it's a legitimate complaint. And so let's look at verse two, how how the leaders of the church respond. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. This next point is my favorite part of this whole section. And it's one of those things that for me and my faith, when, when dots throughout the Bible start connecting, it emboldens my faith and really gives me confidence in this book that God inspired it. So listen, think about this. Put your Bible hat on for a moment and think about this. We're in this narrative, this creation of the church, this creation narrative. There is work that is set before the people of God to do. It's not being done and to completion. And we get this language, this assessment, this observation that it's not good. They need help. What does that remind you guys of? Genesis. Genesis 2. God God makes everything. He puts man in the garden to work and keep it. And he makes this observation. It's it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to provide for him a suitable helper. And he makes woman. That, That when there is work to be done in the name of God and it's not being done, he brings in help. If you move into Exodus, which is arguably kind of another creation narrative, it is the creation of the nation of Israel. Past them being liberated from Egypt, they're out in the wilderness. We know that there's well over a million Hebrews at that point, and Moses is serving as judge over all of them. That's Exodus 18. And his father-in-law Jethro's in town and looks at what he's doing and says, From sun up to sundown, you were doing all of this by yourself? Moses, that's not good. That's not right. That's not wise. You should find some godly men and you should share the workload, the burden of ministry with them. It'll be for the people's good and for God's glory. You need help. You need to ask for help. And Moses gives in to that wisdom and the people are are better off because of it. And so as we come to Luke's story, we get this language where it is not good. We need to find some help here. What, What What an encouragement it is to me personally, when I see things like that, and I'm like, man, it's the same God who way back did that. He's the same in the book of Acts, and I believe, honestly, is the exact same today. He hasn't changed in character. So that when a call for help goes out, as we are to be a wreck-the-roof kind of people, we can be confident to know God is going to raise up men. He's going to raise up people who we'll see are, are full of the Spirit to go and be His hands and feet. What an encouragement that is. So they say it's not good that we would give up uh, a prayer and preaching to go wait on tables. And so if, if we were to just take this one verse and study this, and we just see these apostles say, we can't go wait on tables. We need to preach and pray. It would be really easy for us to have a low view of the apostles and to think, man, these guys are kind of stuck up. They think they're too good to go wait on tables. You see that? Like that, They don't want to do that. Give, give somebody else the job of slinging sloppy joes down at the food pantry. I, I'm going to go preach. Give me a microphone. It would be easy to take that one verse out of its context and to think that. But if we were to read the book of Acts, if we back up just a little bit, in the beginning of chapter 4, Acts 4-4, we're told that at that point in time there was about 5,000 men in the church. So throw in women and children, and that's a big church even by southeast standards, Right? It's a lot of people. And at the end of chapter 4, if you go down to 434, it says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land and houses sold them and brought their proceeds of what they sold, verse 35, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they were distributed to each as they had need. So apparently at some point, even when it was that big, they had enough, to use Ronnie's language, bandwidth, that the proceeds, the, the funds that the church would bring in went through the apostles'. Seemingly to oversee it, to make sure it went to where it was supposed to go. But by the time we get to Acts 6, where it says in those days the disciples were increasing in number, it had grown so much that the apostles were like, we would have to quit preaching and teaching to go do this. We can't do it, and that's not wise. And so to to kind of bring that home for us, that that word to wait on tables, that decoyeneia, that's where we get this idea of deacons. That's where we get the word deacon. And so, here, to bring it home to Southeast, we, as far as I'm aware, we don't have a daily distribution of food that, that the lives of window, widows here depend upon. But there are all, all sorts of needs that our flock has that if, if our pastors were to do all of them, they would have to give up preaching and praying. And so, one example I'll give you the deacons at our church go to funeral visitations. Anytime a member of our church or a family member of a member of our church passes, Someone from our church goes and represents the church to say, brother, sister, we see you, I'm sorry. We love you, we're with you, we're here to serve you, we wanna pray with you, like we see you, we are with you, weep with those who weep. We wanna live that out, we wanna bear one another's burdens. I don't know how many people call this place their church home now, but it's a lot. (laughs) And I don't know if you know, but there's a lot of funeral visitations from week to week. So many so that, honestly, Kyle would have to stop preaching if Kyle went to every funeral visitation that's uh, connected to somebody here. But instead, in in the wisdom of our elders, they've said, we need to distribute this workload. We need some people to wait on tables. And so, again, that's where this idea of deacons comes in. And so, verse 3, verse 3 tells us, Brothers, sisters, flock, congregation, church, you all, brethren, brothers, sisters choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And I love this. The apostles didn't say, you know what? We've got all the answers. We're the smart ones, so we're just going to tell you how this is going to go. No, they say, hey, we're a family. Brothers, sisters, you look amongst yourselves. Pick out seven men who are full of wisdom, full of the Spirit. You all have a, a voice in this. You have a role to play. So again, to bring this home to our, our church context, like this is what we call membership here. It's kind of this line in the sand that you say, hey, I'm all in, I'm part of this thing, I want to have a voice in this thing. And that's why at the end of every year we have a vote where our members at our church vote on who our deacons are, who our elders are, how the funds are appropriated, the budget, like a lot of what we do here and why we do it and how we do it is literally right out of this text. It's not super complicated. But they say, brothers, sisters, you all have a voice, pick seven men from among you, Who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. This is another one of those things where, like, constantly we have to ask is the text describing something or prescribing something? Like, I'm a pharmacist, you get a prescription, it tells you what to do, right? So, is this describing or prescribing that every church anywhere should have seven deacons and no more? If you have more than that, you've broken scripture. Well, I think we just know logically, like, we've seen that the role of even the apostles, their function had changed. Based on the size of the church, based on the needs of the flock, the shepherd's got to do different things based on what the flock needs. And so we, we can see that they, they say, hey, pick seven men, this kind of number, this idea of completion, pick seven men who are full of the spirit and wisdom. And I love that it wasn't like, find seven men who have a resume of working in the food industry. Seven guys who know every, every lyric to the Chris Farley Lunch Land song, who know how to sling hoagies and grinders. It, it wasn't like that. One guys who were busboys at Chi chis back in the day. It was, hey, find guys who are full of the spirit and wisdom. Men who are humble and who will wait on tables. That that's what the Lord uses. And so I, I just think that's that's helpful because like as we look around, even here in our midst today, when you walk in, a lot of times, Glenn, he'll smile at you. David. You'll see Larry working the slides. I mean, is that because Larry has a background in getting up at 4:30 in the morning to run a PowerPoint show? No, he's a guy who said, "Hey, I'll I'll wait on tables." That Glenn doesn't have a, a CV with a big list of like, "Hey, I've been a host team at all of these men's events. I'm your guy." He's a guy who said, "Hey, I'm I'm willing to wait on tables." Now, that's the kind of humility that the apostles say, that's what you look for. Those are the men that we want to step in and lead. It's not that they necessarily had experience in doing the job, it's more about who they are. And so if you want to read more about just the idea of deacons, the office of deacons, I would encourage you to make note of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And those are like the most lengthy sections of scripture that talk about those offices and what you'll find out is very consistent with this, it tells you a lot more about who they are than what they do. Because it seems to be that uh, to be a servant leader for a flock, to be a shepherd of some sort, that the Lord cares primarily about your heart and less about your skill set, because he can use you. So, again, in this idea of calling for help, I think the conviction for us to bring home is it's more about our hearts and our willingness to serve than it is your skill set. Certainly, he uses your skill set. I mean, if you have carpentry skills, we've got all kinds of needs. But I think the heartbeat of this is that he cares about a, a, a heart that is humble and willing to serve. So as we take this into verse 4, verse 4 tells us, and we, the apostles, we will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the Word. The apostles have seen over and over that when they prioritize prayer and preaching the gospel, the church just explodes. That even when they're arrested and they're beaten and flogged, the church explodes. Even, we saw last week, even when Paul and Silas were in chains in a dark place that seemed like there would be no hope, the church explodes and the gospel expands. This is God's way. And so what's convicting to me is that the apostles clearly knew their role, their part in the, in the body, as it were, of the church. And so the question for me this morning, for us, is like, do you know, do you know yours? Like, clearly, Scripture is clear. A nose is not an eye, and an ear doesn't look like a mouth, and thank goodness, or we'd be some weird-looking cats. But, like, every part of the body has a significant function, and that this is not a matter of value or merit. It's a matter of role and function. And the apostles say, hey, we know where God is using us. We need men to be used by him over there. And so, do you know how the Lord has gifted you to be used? If you don't, I would encourage you share that openly at your table. Maybe there's some men around you who see something in you that you have not yet seen yourself and they can speak into you and affirm that. Maybe you do know and feel like you have an idea of how the Lord has empowered you and, and gifted you to be used. Then the next le- logical question is, are you using it to serve the flock? And if so, great, share that and let's talk about the fruit. Let's enjoy that. Let's, let's glorify God because of how he's used you. If you do know where he's gifted you and you're not using it, let's talk about why. Let's let's figure out how to wreck that roof, how to remove those obstacles to get you plugged in, to be someone who's willing to just wait tables and to serve. So in verse 4, we see the apostles are going to focus on their role. And so the response in verse 5, This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenaeus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. So they picked these seven guys. And if you remember last semester when we studied 2 Timothy at the end of it, Terrence and I got this last section that was a whole bunch of names. Some of them you know a little bit about, most of them you don't, and it's like, what do you do with that stuff? And so we talked about, like, if it's in Scripture, and if 2 Timothy 3.16, that all of it is useful, then we need to humble ourselves and, like, sit in it, Right? And so here we go again. We've got another list of names. What do we do with these names? So Stephen, the first, the first name we get, if you were to keep reading the very next chapter, chapter 7, is almost exclusively Stephen talking. And he gives this public declaration going through the Old Testament from Abraham to Moses and all through it. It's one of the most lengthy, clear, convicting displays of a knowledge of the Old Testament and how it points to Jesus and where people have missed connecting those dots. And it's so convicting that they stone him to death at the end of it. So this man, full of spirit, goes out in wisdom, proclaims the truth of Jesus, and they kill him for it. That's Stephen. The next guy, Philip, if you remember, we we looked at him in week one, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. If you were at church this past Sunday, Carl taught on that same section. He shares the gospel, and a guy's looking in the book of Isaiah, and he walks over, led by the Spirit, and just helps him see how starting in Isaiah and going through the scriptures, how it all points to Jesus. And, and church historians tell us that most likely that conversion, that conversation, is what took the gospel of Jesus to Ethiopia, to the continent of Africa. That's how Christianity got to that entire continent. was likely through our, our, our table waiter, our busboy, my man Stephen. I'm sorry, my man Philip. So we've got these two names, Stephen and Philip, and then we've got five others. Like, who are these cats? Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. Honestly, I don't know. (laughs) Scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot about them. Really, it doesn't tell us anything. And so what do do we do with this list? Why would would Luke include that here in this section? Well, if if we were to look at the seven names as a whole, they're Greek names. Those aren't Hebrew names. And if you remember, our problem was, was a division between these Hellenists, these Greek-speaking widows, being overlooked, and these Hebrew-speaking widows, a different group, being favored. And so, think about this. There was this opportunity to say, hey, we're going to make a team. We're going to make a board, a council. And we're going to have a bipartisan approach. We want to have equal representation, and we'll have four Hebrews and four Greeks. We'll diversify this because, you know numerically, there were probably more Greeks at this point in the church. They were becoming the majority, and the Hebrews maybe said, hey, we don't want to be outnumbered, so let's, let's balance this thing out. None of that happened. The apostle said, you all, you pick amongst yourselves. Let's fix this. And what did the flock do? They picked seven Greek men to make sure the Greek widows would not be overlooked. They knew if we pick seven from that group, from that camp, they will not take no for an answer. They're not going to let these, these women fall through the cracks. How wise is that? They front loaded the whole thing. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he told this uh, restorative justice that it was a fight for equality, an advocate for the vulnerable. But I think about when, when my wife and I had our first uh, a family that we're friends with, the wife reached out to me and said, Hey, do you all have a meal train set up? And I said, I, I don't know what that is, honestly. She was like, well, that's where people come by and they drop off a meal to your house while you know, you're adjusting to life with a, a baby in your house. I said, okay, cool. We have groceries. I think I'm good. And she was like, now, trust me, you're, you're going to want this. It's cool. I'll, I'll set it up for you. You don't have to worry about it. And I was like, uh, I, don't, I don't really want a lot of people coming in. Like, we've got this newborn. My wife just pushed a human out of her body. She's exhausted. Like, and she said, no, 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 they won't come in your house. I'll just put a note. They'll leave it on your front door it's hard for me to let people serve me. So again, I push, well, I mean, they'll ring the doorbell, they'll wake up the baby, they'll wake up my wife. Like, let's, thank you, thank you, but it's okay. She's like, no, 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 I I already made it and I put on there that don't ring the doorbell, text and just leave it at the front door. And I'm like, golly, okay, great. Can I just tell you, for the next like six weeks, I just watched the church be the church. Some were guys from my table who've known me for years and years. Some of them were guys that I really just know their first name, and I don't even know them. And they just came in, and they just served us and took care of us in a time when we really needed it, and I was too proud to call for help. And they just loved us really well, one meal at a time. And can I, can I be honest with you guys that one of my sweetest memories of Jim Sheehy One of our own that we lost back during COVID. One of my sweetest memories is Jimmy coming in with his sunglasses up on his head and uh, had a a big tray of his wife's chicken Tetrazzini and came in bragging about how it's his favorite thing to eat and he gave it to me and said, oh, we just love doing this. And he leaned in and looked at my son and smiled and said, isn't it awesome? And he left. He was just willing to wait on a table. I was a little too proud to call for help and he just served me and loved me well. And so in the wisdom of the church and the apostles, they said, hey, let's front load this thing. They picked seven Greek men and said, they're not gonna take no for an answer. They're not gonna let those folks fall through the cracks. We're gonna take care of them. And so in in verse, uh, where are we at? Verse five, I'm sorry, verse six, what happens? Um, They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So this is kind of where we get this idea of ordination, of installation, that the apostles again, double down on prayer and say, Lord, we trust that you are going to be faithful to do what you do and raise up men. They put their hands on them, they commission these men, and they send them. We do that here at Southeast too. I'm telling you, it's not, it's not a lot of smart ideas that we came up with. It's just trying to be faithful to what we see in the text. In verse 7, what, what's the fruit? So the word of God spreads. Luke puts back on that wide-angle lens and zooms back out. What's the fruit of this? The word spreads. Uh, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests become obedient to the faith. Man, if you thought it was booming in verse 1, it's booming now. It's exploding. Even the priest, even the people at the end of chapter 5 who had arrested them and are questioning him, even those cats are now coming to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Luke's like, think about this. And again, think about like, what's happened in the story. We live in cancel culture where as soon as you see smoke, someone yells fire and the sheep scatter. Like, as soon as there's a problem, let's get out. If it ain't perfect, man, I can't be a part of that. But instead, what we see is the church is booming, there's a problem People lean in and they collaborate. Like, like they are committed to one another and they say, hey, let's work together. Let's get a solution and let's just keep running in the same direction. And what happens? The word spreads. What, what, what a strong message for the, the, the way the church is supposed to work together that we are really stronger together. And so let's, let's, let's bring this whole thing kind of home for us in application. And I, I want to just, in keeping with Luke's style, let's zoom in, zoom out. Let's do that same, that same lens deal. So, if we were going to zoom in for the individual, every man in this room this morning, I think if we were to zoom in and apply this to our hearts, I think there's probably a lot of men in this room who need to call for help individually. There's a guy at my, at my table who last year was in a low spot. He said, Hey, man, I, I know you're comfortable around gr- guns, you grew up hunting and fishing. I, I need to get my guns out of my house for a little while. Will you talk to your wife? Can we, can we put my gun safe in your basement? I know that's a really weird request, but I, I need to get them out of my house. I said, yeah, let's do it. I have another guy at my table who, a uh, younger guy who had freshly gotten married and was about to buy a house and was kind of hitting some of those big life goals and checkpoints. And he said, hey man, I, I need some help. I need somebody to bounce ideas off of to kind of sharpen me who's a few steps ahead, to kind of glean some wisdom from. Can we, can we try to meet monthly? And just like, iron, sharpen, iron. Can we do that whole Proverbs twenty seven seventeen 17 deal? Yeah, let's do it. I have a brother at my table who, who used a flip phone for years for purity reasons. And at work, they said, hey, you're going to need a smart device. We got software and we all communicate. You need a smart device. No, it's not an answer. You're going to do it. And so he got the software called Covenant Eyes that takes screenshots of what he looks at and sends a report. And he called me. He said, hey, man, I got a really weird request Can I put you down that it sends you a report every week so you see what I've looked at? And honestly, there's more. If you see anything suspect, will you call my wife and then call me after that? I need somebody to advocate for her. Yeah, I can help. Got a brother who called me and said, Hey man, my my wife and I didn't think we could get pregnant naturally. And it's happened. We're kind of on edge about it. We're excited, we're nervous, but like, can you can you pray over that? Can you get on your face? There was nothing tangibly I could go do for him, but yeah, man, I can get on my face and pray to the God of all creation. And then a couple weeks later, he calls me and says, hey, man, we, we actually lost the baby. Can you please keep praying, but maybe like shift what you're praying for? Yeah, I can help. There, there's men in the room this morning who need to call for help. You, you need to humble yourself and just acknowledge it at the table, and then the minute at the table, you need to lean in. You need to hear that call and you need to respond in faith. We need to be willing to wait tables. For some of us, we've never verbalized. We've never taken that step to acknowledge, and maybe this morning is the opportunity, that you need ultimate help, that, that you need Jesus to save you, that you've recognized, I can't fix it myself and I need the gospel. I need Jesus. Will you acknowledge that at your table? Like we don't have the old hot tub up here this week, but we can go right downstairs to the atrium and walk to the baptistry. All you got to do is raise your hand and we'll go. So zooming in for the individual, call for help. Let's zoom out. There's about a million things I could give you from work to home life to other things that we could apply this to, but I'm going to just narrow our focus because as men, if you give us too many options, we just keep going through the TV guide. I do it too. Let me just narrow the focus. In keeping with the theme of the text, let's just talk about vulnerable women. Our church has really tried hard the past couple years to shine a light on vulnerable women in a number of ways, so I'm I'm just going to keep this as straightforward as I can. Uh, Regarding widows, you've probably heard Ronnie say this a number of times the past year, that we have identified over 900 widows who call this place their church home. That's nearly a mega church of just widows. And remember what James says about real religion and caring for widows. And so we've, we've built a team within men's ministry to kind of organize some events and some ways that we can tangibly go meet the needs. So please write down April 15th, 415. It's a Saturday. It's a little ways off, so we're going to give you more details in the weeks to come. But basically, it's just Operation Spring Clean. We're just going to go try to just meet the needs of some of the widows of our church, just to be the hands and feet and meet their needs because that's what we're called to in Scripture. And then also, in in the same vein as vulnerable women, our church has really shined a light on human trafficking. And so we've created another team within men's that's aimed, a number of you guys are on that team, aimed at becoming informed and educated about what what we can do to try to fight that darkness in in alignment with Carissa and her team. And so you might think... (laughs) that I'm going to announce that we're going to have a training session and Liam Neeson's coming in and we're going to turn into a bunch of John Wicks and go in guns blazing and save a bunch of people, which would be awesome. But all of the data, all of the statistics, really show us that prevention is where most of us can play the biggest role. And truthfully, if we can start in the lives of our children, I know Chris just banged that drum in the MC time, but it's because that's the need. That's the big call that's going up. There's a number of them, but that's one of the biggest ones. There's a lot of statistics I could give you right now. I'm just going to give you one to keep it simple and straightforward. 70% of traffic survivors, and we only get data from survivors. Think about that for a second. 70% of traffic survivors come from a fatherless home. Like, like, the impact of a, of a godly male presence in a home cannot be overstated. And it, it's literally what, what Morgan said, that there are single moms who come in here on the weekend, and, and when kids' ministry is full, they just leave. Like, we, we have to hear that call and be willing to wait tables. Last year, my wife and I started serving with the 12- and 18-month-olds, and sometimes that gets messy in a number of ways, Uh, and I I don't have a CV or a resume with a bunch of experience of doing that sort of thing, but I just felt convicted, and I heard a call, and this isn't saying, hey, look what I did. It's me saying, come with me. Like, we we have an opportunity to go serve the kids of our church. A lot of those kids, believe it or not, and I'm talking SE kids, middle school ministry, high school ministry, like, there's a real chance that for a number of them, that is the only exposure they get to a godly male presence think of the impact. We're talking about family trees. So whatever your application is, individually, zoom out, zoom in. What our text definitely screams to us is that we have to be, as followers of Jesus, we have to have both the wide angle lens and the narrow focus. We have to see the needs of the whole and have eyes for the one. We have to be committed to both prayer and to action. We have to both be willing to say, I need help and respond to the call for help. We have to be men who hear the call for help and will ask for help. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Uh, thank you for the, the, the truth of your living act of word that it sharpens us to, and cuts to the bone this morning. Spirit, for the men in the room who are feeling conviction of sin, would you give them the boldness to confess that to one another in order that they might be healed? Lord, for the men in this room who don't feel like they know how you have gifted them, would you speak through the other men at their table to tell them, man, here's how I see God using you. Would you affirm them? God, would you give us eyes for the individual, for the vulnerable? God, you say they are the one who the kingdom belongs to, that it's the meek who inherit the earth. Would you give us eyes and ears that are open to hear the calls for help? Would you give us the humility to call for help ourselves? And then, Spirit, would you work through uh, that obedient response to both uh, sanctify your bride, the church, and to glorify yourself. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge
0: at the Blankenbaker Campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.